the greatest sermon of all time here. And we're going to continue our study of the Beatitudes. We're going to look at the sixth Beatitude today. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Uh, the 20th century British preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said of this passage is, quote, undoubtedly one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the realm of Holy Scripture. He goes on and says with this text that we come, quote, face to face with one of the most significant and yet one of the most solemnizing and searching statements which can be found anywhere in Scripture. We would do well today to give our attention to the text. So let's read Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at one verse today. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, I pray as I seek to speak the word of God to your people, that you would be with me in the power of your Holy Spirit, God, would bring forth your word with power, with conviction, with comfort. Lord, we pray that I would speak the words that you have spoken, and none more, none less, that you would be glorified now, Father, in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're studying the greatest sermon of all time. This is a sermon given by the Lord Jesus himself. And we're looking at the Beatitudes. We're looking at the sixth Beatitude today. And I want to remind you that these Beatitudes, Jesus gives us a true description of what a Christian is. Gives us a true marking or gives us the genuine attributes of a true child of God. And we would do well to pay attention to all of the Beatitudes. And this Beatitude here is like the pinnacle of all of the Beatitudes. Jesus here in the Beatitudes is declaring who his sheep are. He's not telling us what to do to become a sheep. He's describing what his sheep are. These Beatitudes are completely antithetical, if you haven't noticed, to the world. They're contrary to the current culture. It was contrary to the culture back then, and they're contrary to the culture now. And if you recall, there's a sequence to the Beatitudes. You know, the first Beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, we went through that. That's antithetical to the world. Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing in and of themselves. They have no spiritual goodness in them. They have no uh, no righteousness of their own in their spirit to offer God. There's also a flow and there's an outline. Many theologians have given different outlines. In my study, the way that I've outlined is this. The first two Beatitudes, which are verse 3 and 4, describe the inner working of salvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. This is the inner working of the Spirit of God. Uh, that God does inside a sinner's heart uh, to bring them to salvation. And then Beatitudes 3 through 7, which are basically verses 5, 6, 7, and uh, 8, 9, are the outworking of salvation. Not outworking as in uh, physical outworking, but, but the fruit of salvation. And then the final Beatitude, or two Beatitudes, depending on how you look at it, Verses 10 and 11 are the consequences of salvation. The 
consequences of salvation. So right now we're looking at the fruit of salvation, sort of the, the inner uh, few beatitudes. And as I mentioned, this is the pinnacle, what I believe is the pinnacle beatitude. So let's look at our text, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. i got to be honest, I was struggling all week with this text because it's very hard to wrap my mind around some of these truths that Jesus gives. And I felt very inadequate to bring this word today. And I want to start and end with what I believe is the pinnacle of the text. And that's the latter half is that it says, For they shall see God. For they shall see God. I want to stop and, and ask you to ponder on that for just a moment. Ponder on what it would be like to see God in all of his glory, to see God face to face. Ponder that for a minute. It might seem impossible to imagine, to actually visually see God. You know, there have been many claims out there that people have had visions of seeing God or or even many in, in today's culture where people have died and they've, they've seen God. They, they claim that they've died and they've gone to heaven and seen God. And there's been numerous, uh, numerous writings about what God uh, looks like. But can you just imagine for a minute just you and God seeing him face to face. Nothing veiled in all of his glory. Because it overwhelms me. It, it definitely makes me inadequate to even think about trying to describe what that would be like. But, you know, Moses asked to see God on one occasion, if you recall, in Exodus 33. He wanted to see God. Oh, that I would see you, God, he said. And what did God say? He said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And you see this often in the Old Testament, do we? The idea that seeing God would bring about death, would bring about striking fear. In Genesis 32, verse 30, it says, Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. In Exodus 24, and verse 9, it says, then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the uh, elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. So God in his mercy, even though they saw God, God did not stretch his hand against them because they saw God. Who can forget the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and his train filling the temple. And, and what's Isaiah's reaction? It's not, as many would say in our culture, it's not God buddy-buddy and you know, God's just my my cool friend, or, you know, God is my lover, or God's my, you know, fill in the blank. No, what does Isaiah say? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined, 
because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Seeing God is a, a big deal. You know, I think oftentimes when we're reading the Bible, we just kind of keep just going through the motions and just reading over there. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Okay, what's next? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. But to, but to camp out and really think about what it would be like to see God in all of his glory. To see God as the Bible describes him, not as we have made him up in our own mind, but as the Bible describes this holy God and, and people's reaction when they see God, when they see his glory. You know, God wouldn't let Moses see him in all of his glory. So what did he do? He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you down in the cleft of this rock. I'm going to pass by you. And basically, I'm going to let you see where I have passed, my backside, he says, because nobody can see me face to face and live. And why is that? Because you have such a holy and righteous God Seeing God in the state that we are, in our sinful state, we cannot bear the weight of the glory of God because of how fallen mankind and how fallen you and I are. When Job said he saw God, he repented. He said, in dust and ashes, Job 42, 6. Does the idea of seeing God strike both adoration, but also fear in you. It really ought to. But to the believer, to the believer, there's actually joy in seeing him in glory. And we get that from Jude one twenty four, one of the greatest benedictions of all of the Bible, says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Not fearful, not woe is me, as Isaiah said, but to stand in his presence, the presence of his glory, seeing God, and it says, blameless with great joy. So if you're a believer in Christ, we know when we see God face to face, when we stand in the presence of God, there will be no fear because we know that the Lord Jesus has saved us and redeemed us, and he is able to keep us and to make us stand in the presence of his glory with great joy. So here in this beatitude, Jesus gives this amazing statement that the pure in heart, these are the ones that will see God. And the way that that's constructed in the Greek, it means that these and these alone will see God. See God in the sense of spending eternity with him. Seeing God in the sense of Jude 1, 24, with great joy and being blameless. Now, who are the pure in heart? What are the pure in heart? What does it mean to be pure in heart? And that's what I want to look at today, because if we truly want to see God and we truly want to stand in his presence and enjoy blameless, we need to figure out who these people are that are pure in heart, and am I pure in heart? Am I one of those people? The overarching theme of this passage, blessed are the pure in heart, is that Christianity is a heart religion. Christianity is a heart religion. 
Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. The word for pure in the original language is the word for clean. It means pure in the sense of either physically clean. So this word could be used for something that's physically clean, like metals, objects, wood, whatever, whatever you might have. It, it's also used in the context of being um, Levitical clean, uh, cleanliness, meaning the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament. You know, laws like uh, not touching a dead person would make you unclean. And so the word for pure could be used and is used in the Greek uh, Septuagint, the Old Testament, uh, in a Levitical sense, meaning outwardly cleansed, outwardly clean. But it can also be used in an ethical sense, in an ethical sense, meaning uh, uh, pure of um, unmixed uh, unmixed, uh, evil or corruption, It can also mean to be genuine or sincere. One lexicon describes this word as, uh, in its biblical context, as being free from the admixture or adhesion of anything that soils, adulterates, or corrupts. That's what it means to be pure. But he doesn't say blessed are the pure, period. He doesn't say blessed are the pure on the outside. He doesn't say blessed are the pure in their Uh, in their works. No, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. And this word for heart is the word that's used often. It's cardia. It's actually your physical heart. But it's used here, and it's used often in the New Testament as a symbol, as a symbol for the center and seat of our spiritual life. It's used as a symbol for your soul or your mind. When he says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's, he's not saying your physical heart is pure, but he's saying your spiritual life is pure. Uh, heart's also used as the fountain and the seat of your thoughts, your passions, your desires, your appetites, your affections, your purposes, and your endeavors. This word, cardia, is used 156 times in the, in the New Testament. And most of the time it's being used uh, symbolically as what I mentioned before. The seatbed of your spiritual life, your soul, your thoughts, uh, your affections, your desires, your appetites. So another way you could say this is blessed are those who are clean and pure in their soul, in their mind, in their soul or their mind and their thoughts. Blessed are those who are clean and pure in their desires, in their affections. These and these alone will see God. Hebrews 12, 14 puts it this way. Pursue peace with all men men, and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Does this describe you? You God, we don't fool anyone. We can't fool God. God knows every thought we think. Friends, God knows every desire that you have, good, bad, or indifferent. God knows every evil thought you've had about another person. God knows every lustful thought you've had about another person. God knows every wrong desire and wrong affection that you've had. God knows every wrong motive that you've ever had 
towards anyone. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. Is that not true? For the most part, do we not always think that our mind is thinking the right thing? Oh, I'm in the right on this. But listen to the rest of the passage. It says, But the Lord weighs the motives. God knows the motives that you have. God's less concerned with what the thing that you did physically God's more concerned with the reason why you did that in the first place. God's concerned with your motive on what it was in your heart that caused you to do what you did. So you could do something right on the outside, but if your motive was wrong, then to God, it's just as wrong if you hadn't done the right thing. Now, this puts us in a little bit of predicament, doesn't it? Because who can truly say that you have a clean heart. Who can say that I'm free from sin? Psalm 24, 3 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? I think you can say, who can see God? Who can stand in his, in his presence and his, all of his glory? Verse 4 says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. This is a rhetorical question. Who can say that I am pure in heart? Can you say you're pure in heart? As described here, I know I can't say I'm pure in heart. This has been the truth throughout all the Old Testament. This is not just a New Testament thing. You, you saw or you heard me read some Old Testament, Old Testament passages. You know, even 1 Samuel 16, 7, uh, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his, his appearance or his height or his statue, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance. But God, the Lord, looks at the heart. The Lord looks at your heart. So what do we do with that, friends? Our hearts are not pure. We have remaining sin. If you're in Christ, you still know that you've had impure thoughts. You've had wrong motives. And this is where the text comes face to face with that. And we ought to struggle with that. Lord, what do you mean by having a pure heart? Because we know our hearts are not pure. Jeremiah 17, 9, our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? Well, I believe that Jesus is not talking about a perfect and holy heart because then nobody would see God. We all are disqualified. And so the good news is, is that God is not demanding a perfect heart in order to be saved. God is not saying that all of those who are saved have a perfectly clean heart heart who never thinks a wrong thing because friends that's none of us only one person lived a life like that and that's jesus christ so what is he saying here see i believe that jesus is not uh is is talking about this in a sense of well he's striking a blow to the pharisaic approach to being clean remember the context then the pharisees prided themselves on being clean on the outside and having their having their uh, rituals that they kept and 
the extra-biblical commands that they would keep, and they, and they consider themselves clean in that aspect. See, I believe that Jesus was striking a blow to that and talking about a heart, that the heart of the matter is the heart of the matter. Jesus was saying it's not the external activity that makes you pure, but it's the motives and sincerity of the heart that makes you pure. Purity in heart is not sinless perfection. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about here is a sincere and genuine and undivided heart to Christ. That's what he's saying when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. The Jews put their trust in their religious activities to make them clean. They put their trust in their religious activities, and Jesus is taking those religious activities and crumbling them down and saying, no, it's about your heart. You must have a undivided and you must have a pure heart in the sense of it is solely fixed upon the glory of Christ. Because outward religious activity will not save you. You know, and much of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is actually going straight to the heart, is it not? You know, when Jesus said, you know, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. He goes to the heart of the matter and says, however, I say, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. And then he also says the same thing uh, about anger later on. Where basically he says that if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, it's like that of a murderer. And then later on he goes to the, the uh, fasting and praying and talks about the outward appearance but goes striking to the heart. No, when you pray, go to the closet where nobody can see you. See, Jesus was striking at the heart to the religious, uh, religious people of their day, of his day. And so God, when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, what he's saying is, blessed are those who have, are sincere, genuine, and have an undivided and whole devotion to God. Those and those alone will see God. Those and those alone will see God. Jesus, later on in Matthew, doubles down and confronts the Pharisees on their religious worship that focused on outwardly cleanliness in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, he says, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and are and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is striking at the religious works of, of the day and saying you got to clean the inside. And that's what he means by being pure in heart, is being cleansed on the inside. So that you cleanse your inside, the heart, then the outside will come. But they focus so much on their outward religious activity. 
And before you're too quick to judge, do we not all do that from time to time? Do we not all judge our standing with God based upon our own religious activity? It may not be the Levitical cleanliness laws, but it might be the religious activities of the day, like going to church, even reading your Bible, uh, doing good works to mankind. Uh, too often we fall into the trap of thinking that we're going we're gonna to gain more favor with God by our, all of our great religious activity. Now, there are blessings in obedience. There are, uh, there are principles of sowing and reaping, but we can't fall into that same trap that the Jews fell into, thinking that we will actually earn more favor with, a, with, holy, with a holy and righteous God by our religious activity. Now, at the same time, this does not mean that there's no outward fruit. Uh, there, at the same time, this doesn't mean that, that there's no outworking of what God does on the inside of our hearts. And that's where I think, all, uh, I think most of our culture lands. I think uh, most of our culture is less on where the Pharisees were, but it's more flipped now. And our culture of Christianity today uh, is more of, well, you know, he's got a good heart. She's got a good heart. You know, they may live like the world. They may live in the world and talk like the world and act like the world, but oh, they, got, they got a good heart. And, you know, they were baptized when they were a kid. Or, you know, they've said the sinner's prayer. And, uh, but they got a good heart. You ever heard that? Well, friends, that, that is just absolutely does not line up with Scripture. Because the true nature of our heart is that it's evil. Matthew 12, 34 says, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So whatever's in your heart, friends, will come out in your actions. Whatever's in your heart will come out in your mouth. And so the idea that so-and-so is saved because they got baptized or they said a prayer or they, they, they did A, B, and C, but there's no outworking, there's no fruit in their life of salvation, there's no desire to, to live solely and wholly for God, you have to wonder if they were ever saved in the first place. The Apostle John puts it like this in his epistle, his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 10. He said, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. So here John gives us a working or a, a outworking to identify who the children of God are, who the children of the devil are. He said, it's obvious. So in one aspect, your religious activity does not make you clean. Your religious activity does not even prove that you've been saved. But at the same time, when God works in a sinner's heart and changes a sinner's heart, there is an outworking of that. You cannot separate the two. Because whom God justifies, he also sanctifies and makes them more and more like, their son, like his son, Jesus Christ. So to sum up this idea of blessed are the pure in heart, to sum up this idea, only those whom are solely devoted to God, through faith in Christ alone, shall see God. Friends, these are the only one, the only ones who are true, true believers. So again, 
only those who are solely devoted, or you could say holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, only those who are wholly devoted to Christ. Only those who are wholly devoted to the glory of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone shall see God. Now it's important to note that not, not having a perfected devotion to Christ, but what I mean by that is wholly devoted. There's a, there's a universality, there's a, uh, all of that is within you wants to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And if and when you fail, there's repentance and there's a desire and your affections are solely for the Lord Jesus. You don't have a divided heart, so to speak. Your heart is fixated upon Christ. There's a couple of scriptures I want to illustrate this. If you turn to Acts chapter 15, you'll see here in uh, Peter's sermon, or not, not Peter's sermon, there was, in Acts 15 there was this de- the debate on whether or not Gentiles were being saved by faith alone, just as the Jews, or did the Gentiles have to also get circumcised and do the works of the law? And if you look at Acts 15, verse 7, is that after there's been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of God, the word of the gospel, and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did also to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. Here's the key. Cleansing their hearts by faith. So the Gentiles who were saved by faith, God would cleanse their hearts through faith. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's what Jesus means here. Has God cleansed your heart? Has God changed your heart as we see here in the text? The Gentiles here were saved and they were pure in heart. This is also illustrated in 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 2. John says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. Here's, again, this idea that we will see God. Believers will see God and we will be like him. And listen to what verse 3 says. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's the whole idea when Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God cleanses your heart. And now you have a cleansed heart. As John says, everyone who has the hope that we will see Jesus and that we will live with him in eternity purifies himself even as he is pure. See, that's the idea, friends. That's the idea, is that we have a pure heart, but we're also working to purify our heart more and more. Now, one of the best illustrations of this, and I really want you to catch this, in all of Scripture can be found in Ezekiel chapter 36. 
This was a prophecy of the new covenant, and this gives us the doctrine of what we call regeneration. So please catch this. Verse 25 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will, re- I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This gives us what we call, I said, the doctrine of regeneration. God will give you a new heart. He'll put a new spirit within you. The heart of stone, the heart that by nature is a child of wrath, the heart by, that by nature precede all the evil thoughts that Jesus said in, in Mark chapter 7. God will take that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He will give you a pure heart. And that, does that describe you, friends? Do you have an unmixed heart? Or is your heart divided? Is your heart divided that, yeah, you like a little bit of the God stuff, you like a little bit of the, of the religious stuff, but you also like the world stuff. And, and you won't give up the world stuff for God. That's a divided heart. That is not a pure heart, my friends. And that is describes those who will not see God, but only see his wrath. Is your heart solely devoted to Christ? Oh, Mark, it's not that bad. As long as I do good and, and do these things here and there, it can't be that bad. I, I got to be able to, you know, be good enough to go to heaven, right? I mean, I haven't, you know, murdered like these people or I haven't committed all these egregious sins. God looks at your heart. And if your heart is undivided, you are an enemy of Christ. If your heart is not solely devoted to Christ, you're an enemy of Christ. We need to know that, friends. Has God cleansed your heart through faith? Has God cleansed your heart through faith? Has he changed your heart in such a way that you love the things that you used to not really care about? Things like the word of God and things like becoming holy and things like becoming like Christ? Has God changed your heart so that you want those things where you used to not care about them? Has God changed your heart to where you hate the things that you once loved, the things of the world, where you used to lie to get your way, when you used to do things that, that would displease God, but now you don't want to do those things? That's what it means, friends, young and old. That's what it means to have a heart that is pure, that is devoted wholly devoted to God. Can you say with David, as he did in Psalm 51.10, he prayed out to the Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within you, within me. Does that hold true to you? Is your desire as it is here in Psalm 51.10, is your desire to have a clean heart? If it is, praise God because he'll give it to you. Praise God because he works in the lives of those who have faith in him. 
He creates a clean heart by working sanctification in your life. He creates a clean heart by allowing trials and temptations and troubles coming your way. He cleanses your heart by having people come into your life that do you wrong. He cleanses your heart by having people come into your life that cause grief, pain, and hurt. He uses those people to cleanse your heart. How? Because, friends, when things come up, it's because they were in your heart to begin with. You know, I remember before I had kids, I was the most patient person in the world. You ask my siblings. I was always, I thought I was, okay, it's sarcasm there. I was the most patient person, but when I started having kids, kids were kids, right? And those of you that have kids can relate because a two-year-old will truly bring you to your knees. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, where is this coming from? It must be the kid's fault. And the Lord reminded me, no, that was in your heart all the time. I just didn't have anything that would rub me the wrong way to bring that out of me. And God used my children, the blessings of children, to answer the prayer, oh, create a clean heart in me, oh God. So remember that God is absolutely sovereign. So when situations happen, when things happen that don't go your way, when trials happen, God in his sovereignty has allowed those things to answer your prayer. You really want a clean heart. God has to use those things to bring out what's in your heart that's been there the whole time. As Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How can you bring forth what is good when you have a bad heart, he says to sinners. But if you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you've been cleansed through faith, God will use those things to draw out of you so that you have to deal with them. Then you have to take them to the Lord and repent of them, and you have to work through them. Create in me a clean heart, O God. I pray that that describes you. Because if that does not describe you, if you do not have a, a pure heart for God, if you do not have a desire to be holy, if you do not have a desire to live for the glory of God, if you don't have a desire to honor God, then the only thing left for you, friends, is his wrath. There's nothing left, and you shall not see God. So I'm going to end where I began, and this is the idea of seeing God. Now, the text actually is made in the future. Many Bible scholars have talked about in the presence that the more that we purify our hearts, the more that we can see God in everything. And there is absolute truth to that, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. It's in the future uh, tense, meaning they shall see God. But in a sense, as we do purify our hearts, we live for God more, we, we grow in our love for him, we can see God in everything. We see God working and his providence working, and we can see God in that sense. But this is a very real picture here of those who will see God. We will see God face to face. And if you're in Christ, if God has regenerated your heart, then you get to stand with and see God, as it says in Jude one twenty four, blameless and with great joy. I want to end in Revelation 22. Look at the very last chapter of the Bible. 
let's say it's the last page, but that's where you have your probably concordance and your map. So it's not the, it's the last chapter, Revelation 22. And starting at verse 1, it says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There were no longer, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God, the Lamb will be in it, and His bond servants will serve Him. Look at verse four. They, His bond servants. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have any need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. Verse 4, where it says, they will see his face. Now, God does not have a face, but this is the same ex- similar expression where God told Moses, nobody can see me face to face. This meaning in all of the glory of God radiating towards you. That's what it means to see God face to face. Nothing veiled, just seeing God in all of his glory and his bondservants that serve him will see him face to face. And that is what it encourages us as believers. Those whom we know, although not perfect, but God has regenerated our hearts and we are pure and at the same time purifying our hearts because we have the hope that we will stand before him with great joy, blameless, not because of our own righteousness, because of the righteousness of Christ. It gives us great comfort. It gives us great Comfort to know that we will see God and that there will be no need for lights, no need for the sun, but the glory of God will illuminate us in eternity forever and ever. So in conclusion, let us fix our eyes upon Jesus because he is our ultimate example of what it means to have a holy, purified heart. As a matter of fact, Jesus perfected the idea of living wholly for the glory of God. He said, I only do that of which the Father has told me to do. I hope that's your desire, that you only want to do that which the Father has said to do. And he actually, doing that, fulfilled all righteousness. You see, because you have to, if you want to go that route of works, you have to have a perfect outworking life but you also have a have to have a perfect heart and a perfect, righteous, pure, and clean heart. But you and I don't. Jesus, walking this earth 33 years, did that which we could never do on our own. And he perfected and fulfilled all righteousness, and he fulfilled the law's demands for purity and holiness. And if you're in Christ today, God has granted you that righteousness and he's imputed that righteousness to you through faith in Jesus Christ. So I end again with a question. Are you 
pure in heart. For those and those alone will see God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us in our sins. You did not leave us with an evil heart, one set upon the lusts of the world and the desires of the flesh. God, but you didn't leave us to, to die in our sins, but you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convicted us and drew us to you, God, and by faith, as your word says, you've cleansed our hearts. I thank you, Lord, that you've cleansed my heart. And God, that we continually seek to purify our hearts through the word of God, through seeking to obey you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here, God, that has not been cleansed in their hearts through faith, Lord, anyone here that is not been changed in their inside and the heart, Father, that you, as Ezekiel says, God, give them a heart of flesh for a heart of stone. I pray, Lord, that the words today, Father, for those here and those listening through the internet, that they would pierce our soul, Father, that these words given by you, Jesus, would pierce our hearts, that would a that would cause us, God, for those that are in Christ, would cause us to grow in our love for you. Father, that we are nowhere near of having a perfect and pure heart. God, but that you're working in us, that you've changed us, and that we can have comfort knowing that we will stand before you blameless and with great joy, as Jude says. Father, as we leave and depart from here, God, I pray that you would grow us Continue to grow us, Lord. Continue to draw out, Father, the, the things in our hearts, God, that we need to deal with. And help us, God, to see your sovereign hand over the things in our life that draw those things out. Whether it be having a fearful heart, an anxious heart, an angry heart, an impatient heart. Father, I pray that as your people, you would draw the dross out of us. Help us so that we can shine our light before men and we will be the salt of the earth and glorify you and please you in all we say and do. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.